welcome to Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 166, and it's 26th of September, 2021. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Awesome, because Star Wars Visions came out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously more on that later, because that's going to be the cornerstone of our spotlight discussion. Um, and obviously we have like news and stuff first to talk about, but... Yeah, it's been such a breath of fresh air, you know, and obviously we're going to go into more detail about it. And yeah, I just feel like, you know, I've, I've always loved Star Wars, you know, and I've never stopped loving Star Wars as long as we've been doing this podcast. If I didn't love it, why would I be here? But, you know, I just felt like my passion for it really reinvigorated my visions. And mm. that was just such a nice feeling to have, you know, to feel such excitement for something Star Wars related again. So, yeah, it was heaven sent. So, yeah, very good. How about you, Kirsty? No, very similar. I was relieved to love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just that good, isn't it? And yeah. I think we're both fans of the Animatrix. And I think, you know, if there was like anything we had in mind when we heard this project being announced, it was the Animatrix. And I, I think the Animatrix is awesome. I, I believe you also have a high opinion of it, Kirsty. Um, and yeah, like it really did live up to my expectations and the hype. So that was brilliant. Yeah, maybe we'll talk about the Animatrix later on. But mm. um, like everyone else who watched the new Matrix trailer and got excited, I decided to do a marathon pretty recently. Um, and I love all those movies. And I, I love the Animatrix. And that was kind of what rounded it off. And it did get me excited for Visions. I was like, oh, what if it's this good? You know? Um, so I was really glad that it was. <laughs> yeah. And like you, you know, I, I've been, been enjoying Star Wars, you know, the recent stories that they've put out. But... Um, I loved this and it's nice to really love Star Wars, isn't it? So yeah, um, yeah. there's the stuff that you like and then there's the stuff that you love and feels really special to you. And it's just, it's really nice when that comes along. Exactly. Yeah. It feels very rare and special and I feel like I haven't felt like it's a cliche. I've seen other people say this, so it's not an original thought, but I don't think I've had this sort of feeling about a Star Wars thing since maybe even The Last Jedi, you know, and obviously it's it's like all relative, you know, it can't compare to something like The Last Jedi because the hype for that was so monumental, you know, and it's a feature film and everything. But yeah, it just really did feel special in a way that I haven't felt in a long, long time. So yeah, that's very good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yet another thing we want to mention off the top is that The Love Hypothesis by Ali Hazelwood, which may or may not be Raylo adjacent, who knows? <laughs> um, has no, that a... cover looks pretty suspect. <laughs> yeah, like I, I've got no idea what they're going for there, but yeah, it's just something, something is familiar. Um, but yeah, it's just been a massive success. I believe it's a New York Times bestseller officially now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just love seeing Raylos succeed. So many, many congratulations, Ali. And I want to see many, many more Raylo fix become acclaimed and New York Times bestselling novels, please. So yeah, <laughs> I think it's really great. Um, you've read this, haven't you, Kirsty? Do you want to share a mini review? I have, and I read the fic as she was updating it um, way back when. So it's been kind of cool to revisit that story and those characters and, and see how things have been like recontextualized. So she's done an amazing job with it. If people don't know what we're talking about, it's uh, a new romance novel that just came out called The Love Hypothesis. And it started out as a Raylo fan fiction on AO3 and got really popular. And it's, um, you know, it's it's taken off. And I'm seeing people who aren't into Star Wars at all and weren't aware of it um, enjoying it. And that's really lovely to see. 
and yeah i i devoured it this week and and loved it and highly recommend it um and ali um you know she has a she's a professor she's in science and she drew from her own experiences like the characters in this are scientists and um the main character olive who is obviously ray <laughs> back when um is um studying she's a grad student she's going for her phd and she's able to infuse that with her own experiences um doing that herself so it rings really true i i'm not a scientist but i don't know if anyone who's who's reading it is kind of able to relate to those experiences or even if they're going through grad school um but yeah i think it's, she's just done a really good job and i highly recommend it to people it's just lovely to see that success and i, I hope to see it with many more writers in the community yeah, no, hundred percent. The Raylo fandom just has so many talented people in it, and yeah, it's just a real pleasure to see people succeed. Um, and in, I'm in the UK, obviously, um, and it doesn't come out here until twenty first of October. Um, but for everyone's edification, I wanted to share with people some rankings for the Love Hypothesis in the Amazon UK bestsellers chart. So the Love Hypothesis is currently number two in erotic BDSM fiction, <laughs> number three in science fiction romance. And number eight in doctors and medicine humor, um, and I believe all those categories are inaccurate. Is that right, Kirsty? Yeah, I wouldn't put it in any of those categories. <laughs> so, <laughs> if that first one scares you off, uh, or maybe gets you too interested, just know that you know that the sex is rather vanilla. It's lovely and emotional, but it's not really the the main point of the story. <laughs> People are going to be so disappointed now. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Blame Amazon. Okay, Blame Amazon. We're the ones giving you the truth. Amazon is telling the lies. Terms I don't know what's going on with their algorithm, but maybe if they're putting it in science fiction, they do know that it's it's originally Raylo. Yeah, I reckon they do. And I think that's awesome. Um, okay, so let's move into our news section. Okay, so the first thing we wanted to talk about is that Marsha Lucas um, has come out with comment on the sequel trilogy, um, which is very interesting um, because I think it's the first time we've heard her speak publicly about those films and what she thinks about them. Um, and this quote comes from a book by the late J.W. Rinsler um, called Howard Kazanjian, A Producer's Life. Um, and it was shared on Twitter by Jedi Scum 83 <laughs> One of the, my favourite things about doing this podcast, actually, is, you know, when random Twitter users share things and you get to share their, like, amazing usernames. You know, like, un under what other context do I say Jedi Scum 83? It's wonderful. Um, but yeah, could you um, please read out what Marsha had to say, Kirsty? I like Kathleen. I always liked her. She was full of beans. She was really smart and really bright. Really wonderful woman. And I liked her husband, Frank. I liked them a lot. Now that she's running Lucasfilm and making movies, it seems to me that Kathy Kennedy and J.J. Abrams don't have a clue about Star Wars. They don't get it. And J.J. Abrams is writing these stories. When I saw that movie where they kill Han Solo, I was furious. I was furious when they killed Han Solo. Absolutely, positively, there was no rhyme or reason to it. I thought, you don't get the Jedi story. You don't get the magic of Star Wars. You're getting rid of Han Solo? And then at the end of this last one, The Last Jedi, they have Luke disintegrate. They killed Han Solo, they killed Luke Skywalker, and they don't have Princess Leia anymore. And they're spitting out movies every year. And they think it's important to appeal to a woman's audience, so now their main character is this female who's supposed to have Jedi powers, but we don't know how she got Jedi powers or who she is. It sucks. The storylines are terrible. Just terrible. Awful. You can quote me, 
J.J. Abrams, Kathy Kennedy, talk to me. Ooh, knives are out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh my god, like, where's her Reddit account? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, let's get it out of the way. Obviously, we believe that Marsha has a right to her opinion. Of and course. she's obviously a legend to Star Wars fans, instrumental in the creation of the original trilogy. Um, I, the veering to sexism at the end of this makes me kind of sad, honestly. Like how she talks about Ray, I think that's the thing that hits me. Yeah, no, definitely. Like most of it, I can just kind of laugh off and find a bit funny. You know, like all the hand ringing about Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. You know, we've heard it a million times before. I'm at, and we've also heard the stuff about Ray a million times before, but I don't know. There's just something about the scorn in the tone, you know, when referring to appealing to a woman's audience with Ray, you know, and it's kind of like, why is that a bad thing? <laughs> kind of. And yeah, I don't know. Just coming from a woman who was so like influential and had such a big contribution to that original Star Wars film, you know, you'd kind of want to think that she'd see the relevance and the importance in like having like an interesting female protagonist you know but it feels like that hasn't even registered here and yeah it is a bit of a bummer um like and again like I feel bad for judging this woman you know like this is just a short quote you know like I'm sure she's got much more detailed explanations for how she feels about certain things and how she reached her conclusions but I don't know, just in isolation, it's just not a good look, is it? And is a bit disheartening. I think um, there is a little bit more context in terms of like, she she didn't like the prequels either. Yeah. You know, um, I think she said that she cried when she saw The Phantom Menace. So she is an OT purist and that's what she worked on and that's what she feels attached to and that's fine. Um the Han Solo stuff has always been interesting to me because Harrison Ford is primarily the person who wanted to kill Han Solo and and was even back in, you know, Return of the Jedi era. So I just always think it's interesting when people really take issue with that. And um, I guess when older characters die in these stories, as, you know, Obi-Wan did in the original Star Wars and then Qui-Gon does in the prequels, it's pretty standard, like they're the mentor figure and then they have to be removed from the situation so that the younger characters can kind of stand on their own feet so it's interesting to me that that was still such a problem for people and even luke as well and i love the way that luke his story is handled in the last jedi but of course not everyone agrees um yeah i just maintain that it's it's fine for Marsha to have her own opinion absolutely you know i i think primarily actually and i saw that blast points tweeted this and and i shared it because i agreed i think it's a shame that when like um big controversial quotes like this come out they can kind of distract from the larger thing which is that this is from jw rinsler's final book yeah um, and this is what people are going to remember at least the people who don't buy it and actually read it and take time to read the rest of it and what else is in there because i'm sure there's so much more um so yeah yeah, there's, no, just, no, there's always this point. back and forth about the sequel trilogy, isn't there? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, I don't know, I guess what frustrated me the most about these talking points is they are all so stale and like oft repeated at this point. You know, there's nothing here that we haven't heard or seen in like a million angry YouTube videos or like a million angry Reddit posts. You know, thus my 
my com snarky comment at the beginning. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's just because I find this sort of like type of criticism so like banal almost, you know, and I don't know, I guess part of me would have wanted something more like insightful, I guess, from someone like Marsha, who I really respect. But I, I feel like I have to draw a line under it at a certain point, you know, and she's just a person like sharing opinions, probably kind of off the cuff, you know, and in a context where this is not a book about what did people who worked on the original Star Wars <laughs> think about the sequel trilogy? That's not the point of um, J.W. Rinsler's book, as you said, Kirsty. The point is, is this biography of a producer, you know, and I, I'm not sure what context these comments are made in, like in the book, but they must be related to the context of that particular producer's life somehow, you know. And again, we're not seeing the forest for the trees, basically, I think, are we, when we focus on this quote? But yeah, it, I guess it is just kind of interesting, though, because, you know, Marsha very rarely speaks about anything, you know, she's very rarely interviewed or anything like that. So I think that's why this is getting so much attention, you know, because she is kind of like a legendary figure and it's her first known comment about this subject. But yeah, I, I think I'm, all of us are probably giving it more attention than it really deserves. So. Yeah, I think is you know, when you point out that, um, you know, these are the kind of criticisms of the sequel trilogy that we've heard over and over again, I'm sure the people who hold these opinions think that that means that they're in the right. You know, oh, the fact that they're the ones that you hear over and over again, that means there's some weight to it. Um, and we have our own criticisms of the sequel trilogy, as people are well aware. But I, I just always think it's interesting when people bring up these examples, like Han Solo's death, Luke's death. Those are some of the strongest moments in the trilogy for me. Yeah. Because, because of how they're done, um, what they mean for those characters and what they mean for the other characters, like, you know, the younger generation. Yeah. Um, does it all completely pay off by The Rise of Skywalker? Well, that's kind of down to each of each person to decide i happen to think that there's a, a weak link there thematically but um yeah i just like you because it is like the kind of thing you hear over and over again you wonder like do people genuinely hold these views or is it just kind of like this rote well that's what you say about the sequel trilogy at this point um but yeah i do have to remind myself that marcia doesn't like the prequels either it, it you have to put it in context of like what her career was about and yeah she was married to george and she worked on his stuff but she's not a diehard star wars fan like it's and, and even if she was like you know it is just another person's opinion so no one should be letting this sway their own reading of the sequel trilogy whether it's good or bad exactly i think there's like often a desire particularly in Star Wars fan of some reason to seek like voices of authority you know to see oh what does x think about thing and then that's used as like reinforcement for whatever pre-existing belief or opinion someone might have had um, I, I guess you know it's just that natural desire for validation isn't it like everyone wants validation of some sort yeah but um, I just yeah like you I think that's a bit of a fool's errand even if George himself came out and said something whether it turned out to be positive or negative it shouldn't impact what we feel about these movies because yep. we watch them ourselves and it's art and you take away you know your own reading based on what you see in the text and yeah george can have his own reading and if he has any sense he won't share it but <laughs> we'll see <laughs> oh my god yeah i would not want to see the youtube videos that would result from that <laughs> maybe eventually it'll come out but yeah like you say there is always going to be this explosion of reaction to it because it it makes people money that's the yep. bottom line like it's the the outrage machine at this point um, exactly yeah 
Oh, dearie me. Okay, so let's move on to something a bit more positive. Um, so the positive news is that Ludwig Göransson is going to be scoring Disney Plus's The Book of Boba Fett. Um, and I do have a little write-up from the film music reporter, but that's really just telling you who's involved with The Book of Boba Fett, and we know that. So I'm not going to read that out. Um, but yeah, just quickly, Kirsty, how do you feel about this news? I'm very happy about it. I think the Mandalorian score is one of my favourite things about it. I listen to that score often, even if I don't watch the episodes as often. Yep. Um, it's just, yeah, he, he, he's very, very talented. So this is good news. Yeah, no, same, really. There's not much I can add to that. He's a really, really talented composer. Um, and Lucasfilm are incredibly lucky to have him on their roster, <laughs> to be honest. Um, because, yeah, he elevated the Mandalorian so much. You know, it's... I enjoy The Mandalorian, but it's ultimately a very simple show. And Star Wars, that is not a bad thing. You know, the original Star Wars is a very simple story. And like that original Star Wars, but um, The Mandalorian has been so elevated by its music. You know, that's what gives everything this, like, grandeur and this epic feel and this scope. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm sure he'll absolutely kill it with the Book of Boba Fett. I guess the only thing I'd add is I think that by getting the same composer, they're clearly really heavily leaning into that sense of continuity between the shows which again that's not new information like a lot of the people working on the book of Boba Fett are the same people who worked on the Mandalorian like directors and various behind the scenes roles so I think they were always going to be very very closely linked um but yeah this just reinforces that yeah I'm interested to see what he does differently with that score and like how it feels you know specific to boba fett as opposed to the mandalorian um because we don't have a, a ton of stuff to go on about you know what the story is really going to reveal about boba fett as a character or where it's going to take him yet um so yeah i'm interested to see how it kind of evolves and probably is like you say like somewhat thematically in step with mando but it's going to have to be different to some extent Exactly. Um, and on that note, actually, um, I feel like I, I'm going to toy in post-production with whether I should include the spoiler siren <laughs> at this point. <laughs> it's been a very, very long time since I had to include the spoiler siren in any context. Um, but basically, we do have a rumour from a website called Giant Frickin' Robot. <laughs> I love the internet I've never so heard much. of that site. So. Yeah, like, I, to the best of my knowledge, they've got some things right. Um, they've also got some things wrong. So it's not like cut and dry basically it could easily be complete nonsense but you know because they have some sort of track record it's not completely arbitrary you know it's not like luke fan nine zero 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 five four on reddit saying something um yeah but basically this site giant freaking robot it came out of a report about the boba fett show and how it ties into the mandalorian apparently um so basically what they're saying we're not going to read out the report verbatim or go into the specifics too much but they're saying it's basically like the Boba Fett show will be like Mandalorian 2.5, essentially. So it's obviously not a season three of The Mandalorian, but it follows on from the events of season two of The Mandalorian quite directly in some ways. And the numbering of the Boba Fett show will reflect that. So it will kind of be considered chapters 17 to 24, picking up from the Mandalorian and season two of Mandalorian was episode six ended with episode 16. Sorry, numbers. My brain is <laughs> <laughs> melting talking about numbers. I don't like it. Um, 
but yeah, basically, this report suggests that the Boba Fett show is linked to the Mandalorian more closely than I believe most of us would have imagined. So yeah, what do you think about that suggestion, Kirsty? How do you feel about that in particular? I think it makes sense given, you know, the post credit scene we have at the end of the Mandalorian season two finale and stuff. Um, so it's not totally out of left field. I just um, wonder what this is going to mean for Din's character because mm. they, t- you know, they set up such interesting... I know we keep talking about it because whenever we talk about like the finale in terms of like the the Luke stuff and whatever it's like oh but there's some really interesting stuff that they set up there between Din and Bo-Katan and everyone with the Darksaber and then what's going to happen there and if there's this like big time jump I hope we don't like come back to Din and all of that stuff's been wrapped up and he's figured out where he's going and we don't get to see the messy interesting part um I hope that's not how it works but um yeah, I remember when they announced the Book of Boba Fett and it was a bit confusing because it kind of sounded like it would be the next season of Mando, right? So yeah. it, it is and it isn't, in a way. Exactly. I think it's going to op- occupy a kind of strange twilight zone <laughs> between the two. Um, so yeah, I'm very interested to see what it is because, yeah, I feel like I have no handle on what the show will be or what sort of story it's going to tell. I've kind of presumed that it's going to go between like past and present you know, like going into like what happened to Boba Fett after he was eaten by the big monster <laughs> in the desert. <laughs> um, and how he meets Fennec and stuff. Yeah, exactly. I, I think we're going to see that sort of stuff. But as for what Boba Fett's doing in the present, I've got no idea, you know, like why is that interesting? And and again, that's the job of the show, you know, to make it interesting, you know, and to make a case for why that is a story worth telling. So mm. I'm totally up for that. Um yeah, I just have like no expectations at all right now and that's okay yeah that post credit scene is really quite strange isn't it because it sets up something it's like oh I didn't think that this would be something that Boba would care to do um, yeah. to go back to Jabba's palace and take over because given what they do show us about Boba in Mando it's like oh he's a man of honour now he's going to help them find baby Yoda and um, it it just it almost seems to be like a step back for the character. So I'm like, I don't actually really know much about what this character is about at this point. Yeah. So I'm intrigued. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe he's going to like use it to like set up an orphanage or something. (laughs) (laughs) For baby Yodas. (laughs) Or Jedi school. You know, he could have like found a real interest in the force in the intervening years. Who knows? I'm forever going to find it hilarious that he had to be like conveniently out of the way for Luke to show up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's very true <laughs> you imagine Luke being like wait it's Boba Fett <laughs> yeah I think they must have realised Boba... that would just be a really awkward conversation or Boba's just like in the background like hiding so that Luke doesn't see him <laughs> I, I, I'm really glad they didn't do this because I can actually see them if they had made the decision to keep Boba Fett there I could have seen them like having Luke like give him a look you know <laughs> And just that, just a look, you know, it would mean unbearable. I mean, if he'd had his helmet off, you wouldn't necessarily recognise him, but... It's true. <laughs> it's funny. Well, hang on, are you? It's like how um, Anakin can't meet Grievous throughout the entirety of the Clone Wars, because <laughs> in Revenge of the Sith, it's like, oh, you're... <laughs> he has to comment on his height as if he's never met him. <laughs> but Grievous is constantly in and out of messes with Obi Wan and Anakin, but That's he never so actually funny. gets face to face with them. 
the canon we've got to respect the canon yeah worship the holy canon (laughs) okay um and yeah just to round off very quickly we've had um some new high republic covers come out for wave three um we're not going to talk about these in great detail um i'm probably just going to make myself sound like a fool while talking about them so if you know the answers to my questions that i pose in this section please tell us on twitter at scavengers horde um, because I do genuinely want to be educated and I'm sure people do know the answers to these questions. So the cover of The Fallen Star by Claudia Gray. Um, I think they're probably on Starlight Beacon and it looks in a perilous position with glass cracking behind them. And obviously, as we know from precedent, each mainline High Republic novel has to involve some sort of great disaster. So I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark and say the fallen star of the title is actually Starlight Beacon and it is going to fall from the sky and it's going to be a big disaster. So I hope that it refers to a character as well because I think that would be more interesting. <laughs> I think it will. I, I 100% think it will. It's just, yeah, it's like a big metaphor, I think. And like I think the station going down is also going to tie into one or more characters like declines to the dark side or whatever beginning of the end for the republic exactly i I do just find it kind of funny at this point that like i think they're well done books i've enjoyed them you know as you can tell from our review episodes but you know just the formula of there is a huge disaster (laughs) it's bigger than anything you could imagine you know like i love that that's the formula for these books because it's like okay starlight beacon's coming down it's fine i mean (laughs) star wars is like that you know it's it's an even bigger death star (laughs) Yeah, no, I I full affection for it really. Like I moan about it and I complain, but I a part of me likes it. Otherwise, why would I be here? Um, and yeah, question for the listener. So on this cover, I can identify three characters. There's the Wookiee whose name I can't pronounce, but Buriaga. I know who he is. Thank you, Kirsty. That's it. Um, then there's Bell um, in the background. Mm-hmm. And then I believe it's Stellan who's the very very handsome one at the front. Oh, I um, thought that was Elsa. Okay. I thought Stellan was blonde for some reason. Yeah, no, I think Stellan has a beard and Elsa doesn't. That's okay. how I tell the difference between them. All right. So they both have dark hair. For some reason, I was they, picturing Stellan They both have dark hair. I think Elsa's okay. slightly darker skinned. Um, okay. But yeah. And then there's two characters I do not know. There's a woman at the front who Kirsty and I both think resembles Ty Yorick, but I could swear someone on Twitter said it wasn't Ty Yorick. And then there's like a random blue person in the background. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> so mean about the blue person. But if anyone knows who these people are, please tell us because it's bothering me. <laughs> I want to know who they are. Yeah, I mean, are they from the books that we've read before or are they from comics, which would explain why some people know who they are and we don't? Exactly, yeah. And I must say, I'm kind of surprised that Ava isn't here, you know, because obviously she basically wasn't in the previous big novel in air quotes you know she wasn't really in the rising storm so i thought she'd be back in this one in a much more significant way and she could well be you know she doesn't need to be on the cover to be an important character but Mm. yeah i was surprised not to see her yeah i guess yeah but we'll find out um then there's the cover of midnight horizon um by daniel jose older um i'm not even going to bother talking about that one really because (laughs) i don't know who either of them are (laughs) It's like such a bit. It's very atmospheric, though. It is you know, a beautiful in the cover. heavy rain, and yeah. they're wearing their hoods dramatically. Exactly. And ironically, I believe this is like a young adult book. But it actually looks like a more mature adult cover than the cover to the like actual adult book, you know, The Fallen Star. So mm. I find that notable. 
Um, hmm. But yeah, no, it's lovely artwork. So congratulations yeah. to whoever did that. Um, and then what I really wanted to talk about, which is a comic book cover for Eye of the Storm, which apparently is going to be a mini series about Martian Rowe. Um, and he looks like he's about to start like a death metal band. Um, he's like posing on a rocky precipice, um, holding a lightsaber aloft and looking soulfully into the rain-streaked sky um, in a manner that we would call Byronic, I think. Um, and yeah, I think we're both a bit befuddled by Army <laughs> Kirsty. <laughs> I, want, I want to get it. I want to understand. I want to thirst. I just... I feel like I'm missing something pretty key with this character and maybe it's coming, but some people already seem to be like fully on board and like in love with him. And I'm like, what are you going on? I don't. Yeah. It's like if this image was like encapsulated the air of the character from the books, you know, I would totally get it, you know, because this is a very baronic feeling character, you know, a sense of like a soulful rebellious spirit, you know, up against the world, you know, he might be bad, but he's got his reasons, you know, he's got lots of inner conflict, etc., etc. Yes, people know we like that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, like <laughs> our bread and butter, basically. Um, but I just don't see it on the page, you know? like Yeah, not yet. No. <laughs> maybe it's coming. <laughs> maybe, yeah. It's, and I guess, like, I, I might be remembering the books wrong, but my memory of the books is that, like, 95% of the time he's, like, in the helmet and in the armour, you know? Like, so there's no real description of, like, his emotional state or anything. Um, and yeah, I feel like the most emotion I've got from him in anything was in the um, Tempest Runner audio drama, you know, when you obviously encounter him at quite an early point when his father's still alive and he seems, mm. you know, much more frail and vulnerable and easily manipulated. Like, that's the most, like, human I've seen him in any piece of media so far. And even then, you know, like, he was more just a bit like pathetic and sad than like sexy or appealing <laughs> maybe that's his arc maybe this like comic book series is gonna see him like become a get your makeover sex god yeah <laughs> oh my gosh yeah like and he didn't just needs to like have like love for something you know he's got to like care about something i want to see his soft side <laughs> exactly what's the reason like yeah. i just beyond not getting on with his dad because of course it's star wars but like yeah, I just I'm I feel like I'm just missing something. Yeah. And I'm trying to work out if it's me or if it's like, well that part of the story hasn't come yet. It's not just so. you. It's like But I, I just saw, you know, a lot of fawning and excitement over this cover and on one hand I get it because there's this visual. But then I saw like Charles Saul was talking about it and like presenting it as like, Oh yeah, it's the sexy bad guy and I'm like, Well based on what? Because he hasn't been a sexy bad guy so far. Yeah. It's like I, almost like they're trying to ride the wave of Kylo Ren fandom, but like not... Not getting what makes him sexy. Yeah. Like, so I feel like a huge part of what makes Kylo sexy is that he's a huge simp for Rey. You know? <laughs> I know I sound like I'm being like, um, like a fangirl or like silly or something. But I, I do mean that, you know, it's because he genuinely cares about something. You know, he's like bad, mad, bad and dangerous to know, but he still has feelings. You know, he still has affection for something. Like Martian Rowe doesn't seem to like give a shit about anything, you know. It's like, <laughs> so far, why should I care? Maybe he's secretly in love with Lorna. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> oh no, right, that was Pan. Yeah, uh, I, I think know, he'd, I he'd have to be hiding it extremely well. He's going to come out of like a passionate declaration of love. I'm interested to see if they manage to get us on board because it's like, as I said, I want to be because mm. Byronic heroes, you know love them and love them in star wars but like so far it just seems like they're 
presenting him that way visually and yet like there's nothing in the actual character to to suggest that yeah so um yeah just gotta see <laughs> yeah i'm curious to see what people are going to say about this comic run in particular because i think this is the first piece of high republic media where it is exclusively about martian you know it's focused okay. on him and nothing else well i'll pay attention to it then because yeah you know he is this big presence obviously in those books so far but at the same time i know so little about him yeah so it's like what am i supposed to hang my hat on here preferably yeah so i do think he's very deliberately enigmatic in the books right you know like i don't think we're meant to fully understand what his game is or what he's up to but again that distance means i can't fully attach to him basically and we are two novels in so far so yeah exactly i think something pretty major needs to change you know for me to really be blown away and be like oh my god i love this character he's super fascinating um and i hope that happens you know i want to care you know i like my sexy bad boys um and and i think you know and this is one of my actual criticisms with the the high republic so far even though i'm enjoying it i think we've said this before because there's not like this um personal vendetta between martian and some of the jedi characters it makes it hard to like actually really care about that conflict and feel the emotional stakes as opposed to just like oh they're trying to bring the republic down because it, um, it's hard for me to care about that in a larger sense because you know it's not real it's conflict between characters that matters um so until i guess we maybe got the competition and you know the vendetta from bell now that the stuff with um what's his name oh loden yes now that that's happened maybe there's something more there that's personal yeah but so far it's like well i know he wants to take the republic down but i'm not really sure why yeah (laughs) so yeah yeah no i think anything like that would really help just some sort of like personal anchor in what's going on um so yeah hopefully that's to come um and yeah i'm just curious to see how like long the nihil will last as the villains and how long martian's gonna last at the head of them you know so i know they've got very grand plans for the high republic but they're like coming to the end of this first wave you know so there's going to be i think some pretty major shift in the status quo so yeah it'll be interesting to see what the consequences of that are for martian at all so yeah we'll find out Mm -hmm. um okay cool but that means it's time to move into star wars visions which i think we're both very excited to talk about so to prepare people we're not going to talk about every single episode um in this segment because, I don't know, we feel like if we try to do all nine at once, we'd only be able to do it in quite a cursory way. And we think there's more to say than that, basically. And we want to try and give it a bit more meat and do a bit more justice to each individual episode. They're all so unique. Um, so, yep, we'll be spreading this across a few weeks, basically, um, is the short version of what we're doing. Um, but, yeah, to begin with, we're just going to talk about it in a general way. Um, so, yeah, Kirsty, general feelings about Visions. What are your hot takes? uh i really really enjoyed it awesome and it got it got me really excited for kind of the future possibilities of this kind of work in star wars and how it can kind of expand the galaxy and make it feel bigger and more lived in and kind of decentering the skywalkers i guess um like i said earlier um i watched the animatrix recently again and it got me really excited for what visions could do for star wars and you know whether it could do something similar for what the Animatrix does for the Matrix trilogy, which is a little different, I guess, because they do a lot of the world building in those sequels. Um, but 
just kind of giving it this historical depth, I guess, and um, playing around with different eras and totally different characters and exploring the original influences. So obviously there is this you know, Japanese anime lens and um, Lucas has obviously talked extensively about Japanese influences on Star Wars, Kurosawa movies. This won't be news to anyone. Um, so I, I just, I, it feels like it's like recontextualizing a lot of the myth and lore that we sort of take for granted in Star Wars at this point. And that's what Visions has done for me anyway. And it, it means a lot, right? Because you're kind of seeing Star Wars really pay acknowledgement to its roots and, and those inspirations. And that's wonderful to see. And yeah, as I said, it just gets me excited about what these stories could inspire in the next generation of Star Wars writers and, and artists. Um, and it, as you said, each one was so different that you couldn't really guess what was going to come next. It felt like the two the the first two episodes specifically were almost like juxtaposed intentionally to let you know that there was going to be this incredibly broad range of tones and stories and artistic styles and that was really exciting yeah no 100 percent. like i think the variety of visions is easily the mo the best and most exciting thing about it the fact that it's just this like big playground i think you know for what star wars can be when you really just let people run riot and do whatever the hell they want <laughs> basically um because like, i obviously really like the star wars mythos you know and i understand why there is a canon and people whose jobs it is to try and keep canon somewhat in check but i really do think it can sometimes like <laughs> Like cripple is too strong a word, but I, I can't think of a better way of saying it. So I'm going to say it's a bit of a restraint, now. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like it really restrains what they can do uh, sometimes. And I think before the show, Kirsty, we were talking about um, the Bad Batch. You know, we both really enjoyed that show. But obviously, that is very much a show that's working very closely within a pre-established framework of lots of different pieces of Star Wars media, so like the prequels and the Clone Wars show, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And like it's I felt I feel like it occupies a very narrow position you know in relation to things that have already been created whereas visions it just feels so wildly creative and anarchic you know it's obviously not completely unanchored from what's gone before you know they're clearly really heavily referencing previous types of Star Wars media and Star Wars themes and stuff you know so it's recognizably Star Wars in that way but it really does just feel like this arena of limitless possibility you know in terms of the types of stories they can tell and yeah I, I just found that so exciting and so freeing um I feel like there were obviously some episodes I enjoyed more than others but I enjoyed all of them to some level you know I don't think there were any like bad in air quotes episodes among the bunch um and the ones I loved I really really loved you know and I'm so excited to talk about some of the episodes in particular because I just think they were doing such interesting things with the Star Wars mythos and taking you know like pre-existing tropes and just putting these like wildly interesting spins on them um and yeah it was just fantastic I really really enjoyed it yeah I think I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the show like before Visions came out we were kind of talking about what our hopes for it were or if it's just something that I had rolling around in my head but like thinking about this project it was like it it almost feels like a fan project in a way in that transformative sense where it's like not as you say constrained by the canon that comes before it and it's more about people responding viscerally and emotionally to what matters in Star Wars to them and just kind of going with that 
and and having so much fun with it and really digging into the emotional depth of a story um i think that's just what's so exciting about it and like you say i have a really hard time picking my favorite and i don't think i want to we don't need to it i think what hits me is that it is so diverse and it there are all of these different elements that feel like star wars and each of them explores something that must be very personal and meaningful to the creators behind it so you have these familiar environments and you have like these nods to iconic star wars imagery but they feel expansive rather than just um paying homage to them in a way that could like feel repetitive or redundant and they put different spins on things and they we'll get into it but like something like the twins it like plays with the twin symbolism and relationship that we obviously have with characters like luke and leia that have been there from the beginning of star wars but in a way that obviously turns things on its head its head and it feels like a a fan fiction in that it's like well what if luke and leia were raised by vader on the dark side you know it's just like there's anything that could happen so it like plays with your existing perception of what star wars is but not in a way that feels like it's i'm rolling my eyes a bit here but it doesn't feel like disrespectful like mocking what star wars is it's like okay so we have these recognizable elements but what if it went in this direction instead and and it, and it can so it's 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 really fun yeah and i feel like it kind of like struck at the core of what stalls is in a way that isn't necessarily obvious and that sounds a bit like wishy-washy but i i think i mean in terms of like the more thematic and emotional stuff you know what mm. you see stalls explore and play with all the time so i think i don't know like everyone is free to enjoy stalls however they like you know but sometimes i see stalls distilled down to like the very like cosmetic aspects you know like the costumes and the spaceships and stuff and that's obviously all important signifiers of what Star Wars is. But for me, that isn't what Star Wars is. You know, it's the like tension between the dark side and the light. You know, what's good, what's bad. Um, like relationships between individuals and stuff. And obviously, you know, those are all things you find in any type of stories. But, you know, Star Wars has its own kind of niche in terms of what it does with those ideas. And I feel like Visions really understood that and really like took those fundamental ideas and concepts that Star Wars explores all the time and found really like unique little twists on them that I thought was really interesting and it was also great how it was so culturally specific you know because almost all these episodes have elements in them that are very transparently Japanese you know they're very recognizable like Japanese costumes and like customs and like archetypes you know again drawn from stuff like the kurosawa films um and i i think that's a real virtue you know because the star wars we see is is not just taking place in a galaxy far far away it's taking place in a galaxy far far away as envisaged by americans playing with lots of different cultural influences including japanese ones and now we're seeing star wars created by japanese people who are primarily using like that Japanese culture as like a really major point of reference and bringing that to the foreground in a way it hasn't been brought to the foreground necessarily in previous stores media, even though that Japanese influence has always been there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I thought that was a really interesting thing that marked Visions out as like a really unique and original project. Yeah, I think um, in terms of like the fundamental aspects of Star Wars design almost i mean take the lightsaber for example it plays with what you 
have always known and assumed about how lightsabers work yes. in terms of like oh you can sheath it like a sword and it's actually always lit uh or oh depending on the mood of the person who's wielding it or where their moral alignment is it'll change color and it says something about the person it's it's just it's so much fun because those are things that previously people might have been afraid to explore um at least in like an official sense because that's the way lightsabers work but guess what lightsabers aren't real so they (laughs) can be different in every story and they can be used to to say something new and it's just not something that you wouldn't have thought about before right you kind of take lightsabers for granted at this point they make the whooshing sound and you know if you're on this side you have this color and if you're on that side you can have these colors but there's you can reinvent it in a way that like really kind of like makes you take a second look and that's pretty amazing because you know i don't spend much time thinking about lightsabers to be honest (laughs) like you i don't care about the um the aesthetics of star wars in that way so much but when they like subvert them and they're saying something different with them for a story that's really cool yeah exactly um so yeah, i think now might be a good time to go into the individual episodes we're going to talk about in this segment of our visions series i guess is the best <laughs> way of saying what is um and yeah the f- episodes we're going to talk about this time we're doing them in the order they're displayed on disney plus basically so we're going to talk about the jewel Tatooine Rhapsody and the twins um so yep let's start out with the jewel um so this one follows a wandering ronin who is in a random town um that looks very much like it's Japan but it's Star Wars Japan and that's why it's awesome um and it is basically besieged by bandits who are led by a really really awesomely designed lady (laughs) and shocker they have a jewel um and yeah, I hope everyone has watched this episode. Indeed, all of Visions. Um, we're probably going to spoil it in the discussion, what happens in the short. So yeah, please take this as your final warning and go and watch it and then come back and listen to us talk about it. Um, but yeah, how did you rate this one, Kirsty? And what were the main things that stood out to you here? I loved it. I thought it was a really strong start. It immediately like relaxed me because I was like, oh, okay, Visions is going to be good. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Um, and I probably shouldn't say this to start with, but it's the truth. It got me really looking forward to that running novel that's coming out soon. Because as yes. I understand it, that's going to follow this nameless character. Yep. Um, and he was definitely intriguing. Um, I thought it was a very simple story, but I thought that was a good place to start. You know, um, you know, very very classic running samurai story. So there weren't like surprises as such in the way things were twisting and but stunning visually really gorgeous artistic style um loved kind of where it went with the movement of their jewel and the choreography there and kind of the reveals of like her changing her costume over time and stuff and you know even some of the minor characters like that child chief um they just had me like asking questions about this environment and how it kind of challenged how you saw the star wars galaxy i guess because you know, we haven't seen a planet like this before in star wars canon yeah no exactly i also thought it was a really really strong start to the show um and yeah like i just really was struck immediately by that style you know it's, it's very um stylized it's a very stylized style <laughs> sorry i realize how redundant <laughs> that sounds 
neither of us are artists so no. anyone listening who is uh, or works in animation please excuse yeah forgive the inadequacies of our descriptions um yeah but obviously it's in black and white you know there's like a film grain effect that's applied to it you know to make it look all like scratched and like weathered like it is an old kurosawa movie that you're watching you know which i thought was really cool um and yeah they just like do such cool things with the character designs and stuff like i think that Lady Sif was easily the most interesting looking character in the whole thing and everyone looked really cool don't get me wrong but yeah she was just such a great design you know and there's a moment when she like removes her cloak and like this great big puff of hair comes out and yeah it was just such a great visual moment even just like the way that she's introduced and you see her heels very quickly like that that was interesting to me and I I think there was something similar in The Village Bride or we'll get to that but um I don't think I've ever seen like heels emphasized as part of the character design. You know, even for someone like Padme, we never really see, see her shoes. But for this, they were intentionally drawing uh, our attention towards them. Yeah, no, same. That really struck me too. Like they really want to like indicate this character as a feminine character. Mm. Um, and yeah, I thought that was a really like nice choice. You know, because obviously they're all female Sith. You know, and other parts of Star Wars, it's not like a completely new concept. But there's not enough of them, so it's always nice to see one more. And yeah, I know that character is going to feature in the book um, because one of the editors, I think it's Tom on Twitter, said that the novel Ronin will novelize. Um, this short in the first two chapters oh so, okay yeah so presumably we'll cool. get a bit more context then and then obviously the book will go on to tell like a more expansive story you know using that as a jumping off point mm. um so yeah like it's a really interesting short um and yeah i just also really love that concept you know of having the hero turn out to be a sith because so often in star wars like i don't think it's necessarily how it's meant to be but often the message that comes across is that Jedi good, Sith bad, you know? And I, I think more yeah. attempts have been made to complicate that recently. But, you know, here it's really complicated. You know, the whole point is that everyone looks at this guy and thinks he's some great, legendary, heroic Jedi. And then when they see the red blade, they're like, what? <laughs> you know, and it completely upends what people expect from this person because that's not what they envisage someone doing this sort of thing to be. You know, they don't think a Sith is capable of, you know, that seeming like altruism, I suppose. Yeah. And yeah, I just really like the mystery of that. So obviously you don't get answers, you know, you don't really find out why he's helping this town or what his like quest is. But I think that's great. And it obviously also leads, and it also leaves really rich ground for this book to cover. Yeah, I really appreciated that about the jewel and, and some of the other stories that we'll discuss at a later date. This kind of subverting and challenging a lot of the binary structures that Star Wars has established like from its beginning. You know, he's, he's using a red saber, but he's not, he's clearly not evil. <laughs> so um, I I can't properly remember having read like the premise that they put forward for the Ronin novel, but is it that like he was, he joined the Sith and then left? Is that the idea? That's a good question. Let me see if I can I, find it. I think that's account. what it said, that like some of the Jedi broke away, became Sith, and then he rejects that and goes off by himself. Okay, like, can I read it out quickly? Something's relevant sure. to the discussion. Yeah. yeah, so I looked up the description of the Ronan novel on Wikipedia, and this is what it says. A mysterious former Sith wanders the galaxy in this stunning Star Wars tale. The Jedi are the most loyal servants of the Empire. Two decades ago, Jedi clans clashed in service to feuding lords. 
Sickened by this endless cycle, a sect of Jedi rebelled, seeking to control their destiny and claim power in service of no master. They called themselves Sith. The Sith Rebellion failed, succumbing to infighting and betrayal, and the once rival lords unified to create an empire, but even an empire at peace is not free from violence. Far on the edge of the Outer Rim, one former Sith wanders, accompanied only by a faithful droid and the ghost of a less civilised age. He carries a lightsaber, but claims lineage to no Jedi clan, and pledges allegiance to no lord. Little is known about him, including his name, for he never speaks of his past, nor his regrets. His history is as guarded as the red blade of destruction he carries sheathed at his side. As the galaxy's perpetual cycle of violence continues to interrupt his self-imposed exile, and he is forced to duel an enigmatic bandit claiming the title of Sith, it becomes clear that no amount of wandering will ever let him outpace the spectres of his former life. Oh, I I feel excited all over again now reading that. That sounds great. Yeah, this sounds so good because, you know, these characters are complex and their situations are complex. Um, and I, I, mean, I don't know, but I would hope that it also goes a bit deeper on the Sith lady that we see here too. Yeah. What's her story? Yeah, the same. I think it could be really interesting. Um, can you see in the notes, Kirsty, there's a Twitter link to Tom at Del Rey. Um, so he did a thread about why they chose the jewel to adapt into a book. Could you like perhaps read that thread out? With Star Wars Vision and the Jewel release in our Ronin novel coming out October 12th, probably a good time to explain how we settled on the Jewel as inspiration for a novel. There are multiple reasons. To be clear, there wasn't a wrong choice. We started by looking at early art and reading scripts and talked with the team, looking for a story that had a sense strong of what comes next, along with an enticing, distinct world to expand upon. The art styles played a big role. Immediately, the visuals of the Jewel captivated us. From the restrained use of colour to the character designs, it was undeniable. So many design details raised so many questions about the characters and the world, all hinting at incredibly rich territory for an author to explore. The next is a simple but still true notion. We love the chance to tell a Sith story. We've published few purely Sith-focused books lately, and across the history of Star Wars publishing, Sith point-of-view stories are rare, and in the amazing design and hat droid, too good to pass up. But here's a big reason. The Jewel and its protagonists are unique among the Vision stories in one way. In each Vision story, the plots involve turning points for the main characters. Even if the stories were to continue, what we glimpse in those 15 to 20 minutes is pivotal. It's a call to adventure, a meeting of destiny, a critical revealed truth, a new or renewed sense of purpose, etc. That's true for every main character except the Ronin. As we learn in the Jewel, the events aren't special to him. It's just Tuesday. The banality of that begged the question, why? Who is this guy? It demanded an investigation, and so we had our choice. Now we just needed the perfect author to craft a story, but that's a story for a different time. Spoiler, we found them, Emma Candon, who's brilliant. And just to restate, there was no wrong choice. Any of these shorts could have additional storytelling. This is just the process we used. It isn't a commentary value judgment on the other stories. Like that, again, is all sounds very, very sound reasoning to me. Um, it yeah. does although I love some of the other shorts so I'm kind of hoping that they don't get dropped oh same yeah yeah I, like we'll get to them I think in future weeks I won't talk about them now but there's some I'm just desperate to see what happens next <laughs> um, but yeah like I totally see that main justification the idea that in this one you don't see that turning point for the main character you know the fact that this is just him like living his life going about town you know nothing special blah 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 mm. and, and I think that is really like a very solid reason because it gives the author maximal freedom basically you know to decide what the story of this person is yeah whereas if they were to 
like branch off from any of the other shorts they'd kind of have the answer already you know because they know what the center of the conflict is and the motivating force for that character is it just leaves a world of potential open and from what i've seen of emma she seems really talented so yeah i think it's gonna be very very exciting and i look forward to reading the book me too okay great um do you have anything left to say on the jewel kirsty or should we move on i guess we haven't mentioned how cool that helicopter umbrella saver is <laughs> that's true <laughs> that is very very cool <laughs> and also just the idea of like right at the end you know he's collecting the the red kyber crystals and he gives one to the chief and says it will ward off evil i found that fascinating same because i was like really a, a red crystal will ward off evil i would have thought the opposite but yeah okay. No, I, I thought it was really interesting too. And I also really loved how, um, spoiler, but he like tricked her at the end, you know, with the waterfall yeah, and how she thought she was, was going cool. to confront him. But obviously it was just a shrine, a figure on the shrine yeah. holding the saber. Um, and I've also the method through which he kills her, you know, that is a very underhand, sneaky thing to do. He literally stabs <laughs> her in the back. So I think that alone gives away that this is perhaps not a completely noble hero, you know, the way in which he chooses to dispatch her. Um, again, I think it's justified. She's clearly a very bad lady. But um, yeah, I, I just thought that was a really cool solution to that duel, you know, and like a really interesting way to telegraph the character's morality, you know, in terms of choosing to kill her in that particular way. Um, and yeah, and just that shrine, man, you know, like that's so cool. I, I, love Je- I love Japan and I love Japanese culture, but I'm not going to pretend like I know a great deal about it, basically. You know, that shrine, it seemed maybe like vaguely like a Buddhist shrine or mm. something um and again that just ties back into what i was saying before about the cultural specificity of these shorts you know and how that just lends them such a unique identity in like the wider world of star wars and yeah everything is just so cool i loved it yeah i feel like it, i i feel like going to watch some more samurai movies now yes which yeah, yeah is really what it comes down to right like that hopefully this gets people intrigued and um, looking into that genre definitely i have a blu-ray of sword of doom which isn't a kurosawa film it's quite a famous japanese film you know set in like those feudal times um and yeah i really feel motivated to watch that now so i've had it far too long without watching it and it's been cited as an inspiration for visions so yeah i really need to turn that around cool uh, okay great um then the next one we're going to discuss is tatooine rhapsody um and this one's by studio colorido um could you briefly describe what Tatooine Rhapsody is about? <laughs> um, obviously, do not read out the full synopsis I have here because that would take a while. But yeah, just briefly, uh, what's the like, premise? Oh, like just from my memory. Yeah, just it. your memory. Yeah, it's a memory test. Um, <laughs> well, there's this hut that Jabba is after who happens to play in a band with his friends. <laughs> <laughs> so he sends Boba Fett to get him as they're playing a show. And then like he gets captured and then his friends go and make a deal with Jabba to be like, let us play a show with him. So then they all play a show together in the arena where the pod racing happens in episode one. And it's just a lot of fun. It's it's really silly and sweet. And yeah. Just the complete opposite of the duel. But again, as I said, like it really highlights how diverse these stories are and the possibilities of things that could happen in them and the, the styles that people could put together for them um i really enjoyed it yeah no 100 percent is like a total 180 basically from the jewel 
And yeah, it's really fun. It's um, very light and just like a little dose of joy, I think. Like, I think of all of them, this is probably one of the ones I could take or leave, you know? Like, I did really enjoy it, but like, it's not one I think I'll revisit a lot, you know? Um, But I think it's great in the sense that it does very much emphasise the diversity of these shorts, you know, and the fact that they're going for these wildly different tones and styles, because, yeah, like, it's... And it's also nice to just see stars be so playful, I suppose, yeah. isn't it? You know, like where there isn't like any concern at all with like being serious or like t- t- fitting in with anything. You know, it is just totally its own identity and its own vibe. And it dances to the beat of its own drum, basically. And that's lovely. Yeah. The art style is so cute. Like it even managed to make Bib Fortuna look cute. <laughs> that's true, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he's an ugly bastard. <laughs> An animated Boba Fett is one of my favourite Boba Fetts, so I was happy to see him again. Yeah, I, and also I did really like seeing the um, like dancing girls as well in their animated form. It's very, very brief. They're literally <laughs> on the screen for seconds, but it's like, they're adorable. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I want stickers with them on or something. They're just really yeah. cute. And um, the music was really catchy as well. It was, yeah, yeah. Did you, By the way, did you watch the episodes? Um, did you get a chance to watch the episodes in Japanese as well, or did you just see them in Yes. English? Yeah, I watched it both ways. Nice. So, yeah, we should yeah. have discussed this up front, but what did you have a preference between the different dubs? I think I preferred it in Japanese. Same. <laughs> I think because presumably it was written originally in Japanese, so the music especially, you know, it just works better that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that's just like the original sound for the song and then yeah. they adapt it. It just it worked better for me on second viewing. Yeah, and no shade to the... Um, like English singer, but the Japanese singer is just better. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> it's just the truth. Um, I thought there were some yeah. really cool character designs here as well. So they make that Hut character look quite different from Jabba, and um, also there was like, the the drummer with like the several bodies that were like fused together. He looks like a Deveronian character, but I don't think I've ever seen them with like three heads. Have you? Uh, that is a really good point. Um, I feel like that was new to Star Wars. Yeah, same. I, I did not really recognise the species, to be honest. Um, but yeah, like I need to look up now what De- Deveronians look like. Well, they're the ones who just look like devils, you know. So oh, them... I see. But with the multiple heads thing is um, yeah. different. Right, yeah, yeah. So I wondered if he was actually a Deveronian. Like, I, I don't know if there's like a completely different species like that, but I don't remember seeing it in Star Wars before. Yeah. Could be conjoined triplet Deveronian. <laughs> maybe although that did confuse me actually because um that character it seemed like they were three distinct individuals right you know in one body they would like turn their head and say something like they were they were almost arguing with each other exactly yeah but then they only had one name <laughs> you know <laughs> i was like did, are you just like a collective are you individuals they could it confused me a bit but whatever we need to know <laughs> yeah i want the story of that person's or people's lives so yeah. yeah there were lots of cute little details like Jabba's tail tapping along to the music <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh my gosh um, and I, I also because this was only the second one I was like really uh, happy to see prequels settings and imagery because obviously Tatooine it's like oh they could just go with like something that just like shows you the Tatooine that you know from the originals but seeing the pod racing arena it was like oh cool prequel nods yeah no, 100%. It was really cool to see like that really, really open embrace of the prequels. It's not a criticism as such of Visions, but something I would have liked to have seen would have been a little bit more direct, 
like interaction with what the sequels did. And I definitely see some like aspects where you do see the influence of the sequels to some degree. You know, so I don't think it's completely absent, but I think the references, obviously mainly to the original trilogy, because duh, um, but then also to the prequels, they were much more obvious, you know. But And I guess that's yeah. not really surprising because those, like the originals and the prequels, they've had much, much longer to embed themselves in people's consciousnesses, you know, whereas the sequels are much more recent, so they're not going to be as ingrained, I suppose. Yeah, I wondered if there was just a kind of boring, pra- pragmatic reason for that in that they've been working on these for a while and the the sequels were like ongoing while yeah. they were working on them, obviously. I don't know, but, you know, some of the like the twins that we'll go on to discuss in a minute apparently that's set after the rise of skywalker but you wouldn't know from watching it no you know and the and the visuals still feel very original trilogy inspired which of course the sequels are too so it's not like it feels out of step but um like you say there's not like anything that feels like um recognizably like oh they took inspiration for that from the sequel trilogy in a way that you know with the pod racing it's like so clearly associated with episode one yeah exactly there weren't any favias or porgs <laughs> no oh porgs would have been really cute yes i'd love to see anime porgs that would be amazing but maybe maybe we'll get a second visions anthology at some point you oh, know God, i think I they've already so. said actually depending on how people respond to this they might so i really really hope it gets good numbers for that reason because I feel like with Disney Plus, the animated stuff is always going to be a bit more niche. You know, people are mainly going to be really hyped and excited for live action. But yeah. I really, really want Visions to do well, so they make more of them. So yeah, please go and watch Visions if you're not already me watching too. it. It's yeah, it's making me really happy. And you know, probably the same as you. Like Tatooine Rhapsody wasn't one of my favorites, but that's just because some of the others were so strong and so up my alley in terms of what what i love about star wars yeah but you know star wars is also very silly and this really embraced that and yeah it was just really sweet exactly yeah so very very good indeed and just lovely and fun which is always very important um okay cool so then we'll round out today by talking about the twins which was produced by studio trigger um and of the three this is definitely the most goo goo batshit bananas <laughs> the best These way characters are wild <laughs> they are um and yeah basically it's about twins created through the dark side whatever that means um and they're called Kare and am and like brother and sister basically um and Kare has like for whatever reason turned to the light side and he's like running off with this like power source that they're using to like charge these like twinned star destroyers it's, I, I sound like a crazy person describing this but this is just what happens and yeah then his sister am like runs after him and there's lots and lots of fighting in space basically um and it's all very very dramatic and shouting things at each other and <laughs> like life and death and light side and dark side and brother and sister and like love and hate and or it's just everything turned up to the ninth degree and <laughs> i think the first time i watched it i was kind of like this is silly but then i rewatched it just before we recorded and i was like this is silly <laughs> <laughs> you know in a way that made me really excited and i just loved yeah. how outrageous it was you know and how it just yeah. had no fucks to give basically <laughs> you know I, I thought it was fabulous yeah i really enjoyed it 
I've only had a chance to watch this one time, unfortunately. I really wanted to watch it again before we recorded, so my memory isn't as fresh. But I do remember being so impressed with how it really didn't give a damn about what what felt realistic. And it just went all in on the operatic elements of Star Wars, like dueling on a Star Destroyer in space. Why not? Um, And even, you know, giving nods to things like the binary sunset, but putting the twist on it, like you say, with... Um, the intensity of the love and hate relationship between the twins and it did feel like a dark mirror image of Luke and Leia and I've always wondered and again coming back to this like sense of visions being like a transformative take on Star Wars it is like what if Luke and Leia were raised by Vader or what if Leia turned to the dark side if if Vader had discovered his relationship with her before Luke um, yeah it just it felt like it, it could go anywhere and these characters will stop at nothing you know they have this wild ruthlessness to them because they were literally raised on the dark side for this purpose and one of them um turns away from that but yeah they, they're still bound by this relationship that they have but what's going to happen next between them and there, it does like end on this ambiguous note um so you can't help but theorize what would happen next. So a lot of these stories, I'm like, oh my god, I need I need a sequel yeah. <laughs> to know what happens to these characters. Exactly. There's so much left open in this one in particular. Obviously, I just made the point about how I would have liked to have seen more sequel trilogy influence. And I feel like out of all of them, I did see the most sequel trilogy in this one, perhaps. Or at least it was one of the ones where I saw the most. You know, there's like a scene where you get the like brother and sister in like a hangar, you know, and that reminded me a bit of the rain Kylo in the hangar in Tross, you mm. know, and again, that could easily be coincidental. They could have already been working on this when Tross came out, but it felt reminiscent to me. And I think just that whole idea of having people who really love and care about each other on opposite sides, you know, light side and dark side. That felt very real to me. Obviously, it's a different context because it's love between siblings rather than romantic love. But I I could still see that there, you know. And I think really what I saw in the twins was just this like very operatic and exaggerated distillation of these themes that we see stars doing over and over and over again, you know. And that like tug of love kind of between characters is something that's so important throughout all kinds of Star Wars media you know because you don't you obviously don't just get that with Raylo you know although I feel like that's the most prominent example where you see it between two young force users you know and I think that's the main point of similarity that reminded me of these two young people on opposite sides of the force even though it's not romantic (laughs) I feel like I need to keep saying that otherwise people are going to say I ship them and I don't really ship them it doesn't need to be said. Reasonable people will know what you're Good. talking about the difference there. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, I I agree that like there was the there was these echoes that like felt original trilogy inspired, but that can make them feel sequel trilogy inspired because that's the evolution of that aesthetic, right? Yeah. Um, and just some of them, even like the the design of that twin star destroyer was so funny to me because it is like again a reworking of something that you've taken for granted since 1977 yes but it like the bunk bed version <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just adorable <laughs> so ridiculous like why would they need their own star destroyer so that they can feel like i don't know it perfectly <laughs> distilled that sibling dynamic to me into this like inherent rivalry but like that they're conjoined and together and you know they're, they're going in the same direction but they have to have their own space and it's <laughs> really funny yeah exactly it's kind of like metaphor but taken to a ridiculous extreme <laughs> so it's like everything in this is just an enormous metaphor 
basically, <laughs> you know, and it's all very, very like on the nose and like obvious in how it's doing it, but in a great way. So yeah, I really enjoyed what they were going for. Um, and I also, and loved- I was trying, Sorry, I go- kind of, part of me is like, oh, I kind of wish I hadn't um, known that this was supposedly set after the Rise of Skywalker. Cause there were all these questions I had about like, did they idolize Vader too? Cause they're kind of dressed like him. And like, did they, you know, what is their understanding of how the conflict of the galaxy has like risen and fallen? Cause they were, they were raised for this purpose. So what's, what do they feel like their context is? I don't know. There were lots of unanswered questions. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, like who, who, who raised them on the dark side? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? <laughs> like, yeah so it did remind me you know there's very very brief flashes where you see like them being created you know you see like an embryo and that sort of thing um and it kind of like gave me like unsettling flashbacks to you know the rise of skywalker stuff and all the cloning nonsense of palpatine and i was like oh god did some of his acolytes like survive and like just keep on doing their thing you know and i guess if you did have to rationalize it as part of canon that's what it would be you know but Again, that's part of the joy of visions not really being canon. You know, the fact that it just doesn't matter, and that's very freeing and nice. I think just because I love Ray so much, I couldn't help but like think about its context in terms of her life and sure. like you know what she fought for and everything she sacrificed. And I was like, was that just like a blip? Is this a hundred years into the future? Is it just a couple decades? Is Ray still alive? Is she mm. somehow part of this? Um, you know, I. I she she's the center of my star wars a lot of the time so i I couldn't help but think about her yeah no no and that's completely reasonable like and yes it is interesting like um it's in a way like and again i i don't like to accept this (laughs) to some extent but ray like in her own right was kind of born on the dark side you know from a certain point of view you know (laughs) because of her lineage you know and who her father was and thus who her grandfather was um be at this short is obviously taken out in an even more literal way you know when they were clearly like born like to dark side cultists or whatever it is and then raised to be on the dark side you know and that's obviously different um mm. but yeah it does have unsettling implications if you are to take it too seriously relative <laughs> to ray's story but in my head it's like a thousand years later and they had a good run you know <laughs> <laughs> But then in that case, why specify, like, you didn't need to tell us that it was set after the Rise of Skywalker. It's <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> true. But again, I think that was just, like, some random interview or something, wasn't it? So oh, okay. So it's easy to All right. ignore it. And okay. it's not in the short itself, most importantly, because, yeah, I, I feel like 99.9% of people watching that would feel completely, like, dislocated from any sense of where this happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yet another thing I thought was interesting in it was there's, like, this kind of, like, fatalism and almost nihilism on the part of the sister you Mm. know she's saying like you're afraid of death you know like taunting the brother and I just thought that was such an interesting idea it kind of reminded me a little bit of Kylo you know and how he has that whole like pain thing going on in the sequels um and just kind of like capturing what a miserable existence is to be wedded to the dark side Mm. you know there's this like obsession with death this obsession with like pain and suffering to some extent and using that as fuel for your existence and just like capturing like what a miserable futile existence that is and how the brother really wants to save his sister from that 
And yeah, yeah I, I would love to see that sort of idea explored more. And yeah, of all the shorts, this is definitely up there for one of the ones I'd want to see more of because it's like, there's so much we don't know here. What the fuck? What is this? Yeah, it really challenges my ideas of the dark side. I guess in, in a way that the jewel does too, where, you know, my understanding of the dark side has always been that it must be very lonely. You know, you have characters like Kylo and Anakin who betray and lose people that they know and love. And then um, obviously there's Palpatine, but he's not a, a figure of love or genuine support for Anakin at all. But these two, they're together and they care about each other. So how do you reconcile that with being on the dark side too? Yeah. Um, it just was like a different spin on it and it kind of opened up the possibilities for dark side storytelling in a way that I guess that they'll, they will pursue that sort of thing with the Ronin novel. But as you know, Darth and Turner <laughs> said earlier <laughs> on his thread, it's like, we haven't seen much of that from Star Wars so far. The focus has been very much on the Jedi and the Sith as their dark mirror, but we're going to, we're going to explore that a bit more. Yeah, no, exactly. It's such a rich area for storytelling and it's honestly shocking to me that Star Wars hasn't done more with these sorts of like topics and questions up until now. But now they've seen, you know, what creators can do when they're really like set free, you know, to explore these areas. Hopefully they see the potential in it as well. Um, because yeah, I really want to see more of this sort of thing from someone like Acolyte as well. So sense that that's gonna be a bit more dark sider focused. And hmm. yeah, it's potential to be awesome, so please be good. I'm um, sure this is not the case, but because you know, he's a character that I love so much. I loved. I would love to imagine that it's like Kylo's success as a character and like how people responded to his arc that kind of has, has maybe had an impact on where they're going with this direction of things with the emphasis on dark side characters because like you can add a lot of depth there in a way that maybe wasn't there so much with Vader in the original trilogy. Yeah. 100%. Um, like, I think yeah. they must be aware of how popular Kylo is, you know, and the success of that character. Um, and yeah, if they didn't, like, see the like possibilities that opens up, I think it would be pretty short-sighted of them. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think it just reflects, like, a lot of, um, like, growing... I mean, people have always been interested in villains, I suppose, but, um, I don't know, there just seems to be more of an appetite for, like, hearing from those characters more these days not just like the goody goody heroes yeah a hundred percent i think that like allure of the gray area you know and like understanding why people might do bad things i think that's much more in the mainstream now than it was a few decades ago um and yeah i think there's a good thing i think it leads to much more interesting stories um yeah, this is slightly inane as a comment, but I also loved that, you know, each sibling has like a droid like friend with them. <laughs> and yeah. like the um brother has um like an R2D2 knockoff droid basically, and the sister has yeah. a C3PO knockoff droid. <laughs> and I thought that was fabulous. You know, it's obviously it's some um, like reference in the original. <laughs> <laughs> and I also just thought the C3PO knockoff droid was really funny because, you yes, know, like, she's obviously like super dark side, super serious, but the droid is like just a bit silly, you know, just like incredibly supportive of all their endeavors. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I will be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It actually reminded me a bit of, um, you know, there's like a protocol droid, I think that's like Afra's friend, who's like yeah. a murderous assassin. It reminded me of that sort of vibe, you know, like very pleasant, but also really, really evil. Yeah, it's a very funny combination, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, great. Um, I think that's a good place to leave it for now. Um, we've obviously got a lot left to say about Visions. Um, so we hope that you'll watch along with us and that you're enjoying the show as much as we are. We would actually really love to get like emails and thoughts from you guys about how you about what you think about Visions, what your favourite episodes might be, what makes you excited for the show. Like maybe if you don't like it, why and stuff? Because we'd be up for hearing different opinions too. Um, but yeah, if you have thoughts you want to share, please do email us at scavengershorde at gmail.com. Yeah, I saw someone on Twitter responded to my tweet about Visions. They were like, oh, I've just watched The Jewel and it's so good that I'm scared to like watch more of it. Like, oh. I just kind of want to leave it there. And I was like, I get the impulse. But, but I promise I really okay. hope they do continue because <laughs> there is stuff there that's arguably even better. Yeah. So I'm really excited to, dis- to discuss over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. I think some of the strongest episodes are saved to last, to be honest. But yeah, we're not going to get there today. So <laughs> I'll shut my mouth. Um, but yeah, no, that was great. Really enjoyed that discussion, Kirsty. So thank you. Me too. Yeah. Okay. So I'm Rachel and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kirsty and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time. Bye. Bye.